Hey, what's up? This is Jocko Willink. I am the author of Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. I've been on Books on Pod with Trey, and we've been going into some details about the operating system that will make you better. Go get some. Hello, readers. Sam Acho is a nine-year NFL vet with the Cardinals, Bears, and Bucks, a public speaker, humanitarian, and now a published author. His new book is Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. Sam, thank you for the time. How are you today? Man, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be doing this with you. So, Sam, how did you end up writing this book? Yeah, so this book was really birthed out of a lot of pain and doubt and fear and frustration, but also freedom. So my book, Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes, I started writing it the week or so after I got released from the Chicago Bears. And I just signed a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract the year before. And it seemed like on the outside, things were going great. But on the inside, I was struggling. I, I was pretending. I was hiding. I was acting like somebody who I wasn't. And about a week before training camp, I was sitting down with a friend. And I was in tears because I was looking at him saying, man, like, I don't know what's going on in my life. My relationships are struggling with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, with my family. Like, relationships aren't going great. Like, even interpersonally within myself, I am not doing well. And I said, man, I just need the season to start. I just need to get back to football. I'll be around my teammates and friends. And once I get back to the season, then everything will be okay. And he looked at me and he said, Sam, if that's how you feel right now, I'm afraid of what happens when when football is over for you for when you retire. And as he's looking at me and I'm crying, right? He looks at me and he says, and oh, by the way, Sam, it's nice to see you. nice to see you and I didn't know what he meant because I'm thinking like do you really see me he said I've known you for 10 years and I've never seen this side of you I always see the smile the put together the suits all the things but I've never seen this side of you but he said it's good to see that you are human and he actually recommended I go talk to a counselor a therapist and so I did and so the very next week the day he reported to training camp right reported that night at 7 p.m that morning, 7 a.m., I'm in a counselor's office for the first time in my life. And he looks at me, right? We're talking about how did this book come about? He looks at me, he says, hey, Sam, I got a question for you. He said, what do you do when you get angry? And I respond, I said, well, I, I don't get angry. He says, come on, man. Like, just, you know, what do you do when, when you get angry? Surely you get angry. And I said, I just try not to get angry. And he looks at me again. He says, Sam. As he nods his head, he says, everybody gets angry. (laughs) So what do you do when you get angry? And something about those words, I could pierce my soul. I started to cry. And he looked at me in my tears. He said, it's nice to see you, Sam. And so this book is really about what it means to be seen, to be known, and to be loved. For so long, me and so many people, we've been putting on these masks, whether we're hiding our anger, hiding our fear, hiding our joy, hiding our sadness, hiding our frustration, hiding our gifts and our talents. We put on these masks. And these figurative masks we wear, they're so uncomfortable and they're so heavy, the weight that we carry. And I just wanted people to 
realize the freedom that I realized once I started taking off my mask and letting the world see me. Who is Jerry and how did he serve as inspiration for this book? Absolutely. Well, this book is dedicated to a man by the name of Jerry Price, a man who was my next door neighbor when I lived in Arizona playing for the Cardinals. He was a 60 something year old dude. And I was 20 something years old. I was 22. He was about 65, 66. And he'd been married for 40 plus years to a beautiful woman named Judy. And they were in love. They were madly in love. They were married at a young age, right? 20, 19 or so, maybe even younger. And they would still hold hands and dance together, throw parties for their friends. And I would just gotten married. My wife had just come from Nigeria. She'd never been to America before. She came from Nigeria to America. We had these new neighbors and Ngazi and Judy became really close. And therefore, Jerry and I became really close as well. And Jerry, is a, he was a psychologist in his own right, right? He does stuff for baseball players, marriage counselor, marriage therapist. And I would just sit in his office and sit and listen and learn, sit, listen and learn. And I moved on from there. So the Cardinals went to the Chicago Bears and we kept in touch from a distance. So all of a sudden, I saw a message on Facebook from him asking for my permission to leave. See, he had been battling a years long battle with cancer and it wasn't getting better. We'd been praying for him. We had been supporting him, doing all the things. He had tried everything. It wasn't getting better. And he he said, man, I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm ready to go see Jesus. I'm ready to go home. And so I called him. As soon as he picked up, you could tell he only had about 20% of the strength in his voice left. I didn't know what to say. I just you're asking for permission to go. Like, what does that even mean? I've never dealt with death like this before. Like, what do you mean? And he said, Sam, I know I'm ready. I know it's my time. I've lived a long life. I've lived a good life. At this point, he was 70 something years old. All right. I fought my fight. I'm ready. And I said, okay, well, before you go, man, give me what you got. Give me something. Give me some wisdom advice, something. I used to always go to your office and sit and listen. Give me something. And he said, Sam, I've got two things for you. He said, number one, the most important thing you can do on this earth. He said, I've traveled far and wide. I've talked with millionaires, billionaires. I've done it all. He said, but the most important thing you can do is to get to know Jesus intimately. He said, God takes no greater joy than you getting to know Jesus. Then there, it's like this mutually beneficial symbiotic relationship, right? You get joy. And at the same time, God gets joy. Get to know Jesus. I'm telling you, there's nothing more important you can do on this earth. And then he paused. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I'm, I'm like, what you, come on, give me, what you, you know, you said there was two things. What's the second thing, right? The first <laughs> thing was me. What's the second thing? And he looked at me. I mean, we were on the phone. So it was this, as if he looked at me and he said, The second thing I want you to know, Sam, said, I want you to know that you are worth getting to know. Never forget that you are worth getting to know. And those words that I heard from my friend who would go on to pass away a few days later, he would slip into a coma and die peacefully in his sleep. Those would be the last words I heard from my friend, Jerry. You are worth getting to know, get to know Jesus and you are worth getting to know. And so this book, once again, is a reminder, uh, almost like a call to our souls, to our hearts, to our spirits, the people inside of us, reminding us that we are worth getting to know. Somewhere along the line, we've forgotten that truth. 
As a high school player, you were not very highly recruited. That is, until you got offered by Pete Carroll and USC. That's a pretty big offer, especially considering what Pete Carroll had built USC up to at that point. How did that go down, and what was your response to receiving that scholarship offer? Absolutely, yeah. I went, I'm from Dallas, Texas. And people know Texas is a football capital of the world in a lot of ways, but I did not go to a football powerhouse. I went to a small private school, an all-boys college prep school. I had about 80 people in our graduating class, and and I was going to a school with 80,000 almost, or excuse me, that's the college I would end up going to. But when I was in high school, I remember going to a football camp at USC, and the long and short of it is it was an invite-only camp, but we weren't invited, but we kind of just showed up. (laughs) We had friends in California, heard about the camp. We showed up at this camp. At this camp was when I got, quote-unquote, discovered by Pete Carroll and some of the coaches, and they essentially offered me a scholarship, and I said no. The reason I said no, and I kind of tell the whole story in the book, but the reason I said no, something in my spirit wasn't sitting right with the way the offer was going down. And yes, it was a dream school. And yes, it was, I mean, they had just won three championships in a row. They were going for a fourth. I mean, it was this unbelievable perennial powerhouse, private school, business school, the whole thing. And for whatever reason, I just couldn't say yes. I said no. And I was actually in the airport getting ready to head to Nigeria to do some medical mission work. And so I said no. I hung up on Pete Carroll. I got on the plane <laughs> and I did this mission trip. And I think on that trip, my perspective changed a lot. And by the grace of God, I came back from that trip. And though I wasn't recruited by anybody before that trip, I guess people had found out that USC had offered. And also my highlight tape that I've been asking my, not even my coach, my computer science teacher, who was a seventh <laughs> grade coach to make, and he, uh, he finally got that tape on a recruiting website called Rivals. And, and so all of a sudden I came back from this trip and I missed calls and voicemails from coaches all around the country asking me to go play football at their university. So as a Longhorn fan, I am happy to report to those who aren't aware that you ended up here in Austin at UT. One of your goals when attending the University of Texas was to win the William V. Campbell Trophy, a.k.a. the Heisman Trophy for Academics. What was your biggest hurdle that you had to overcome in ultimately winning this award, and how did you do it? Yeah, well, initially, Trey, it wasn't a goal when I just first came to the school. I just wanted to go to the best business school, the best school and the best football, ideally, right? Best of both worlds. Maybe make it to the NFL and maybe get a great education. That was my goal. And so initially wanted to go into the business school. So I got into the business school, but then I heard about this honors program, right? And I heard about this honors program in the business school. I didn't know too much about it, but I heard, man, you can apply. You're really smart. You can get in. But in addition to that, I had another mentor named Dallas Griffin, a guy who played center at the, the school. And he had just won this award called the Dratty. It was called the Dratty Trophy at the time, the Academic Heisman Trophy. Now it's called the William B. Campbell Award. And I said, wait, Academic Heisman Trophy? Please tell me more, you know? And so he said, yeah, man, well, I mean, getting the honors program, it already gives you a head start. You're at the, one of the best football schools in the country. You're halfway there. And so I applied. I got in. I was excited. I thought it was going to be easy, just like everything else had been in a lot of ways. And academics, oh, yeah, this is a breeze. And it wasn't, right? It was the best of the best, the brightest and the smartest kids and the best professors. And I actually, my first semester, I got kicked out of the program. My GPA wasn't high enough. And so I got kicked out of the program. And, and I said, okay, I'll just write an appeal and let them know that it was because I was busy in football. No big deal. And so I appealed that decision and they denied my appeal. And now I'm thinking, oh, man, well, what about my Campbell Trophy Award dreams? And what about this and that? And I said, well, at least I'll still be in the business school, right? And I told my dad what had happened. And I think he knew I was a little bit sad and dejected. And he said, hey, son appeal again. 
And I'm sitting there like, appeal again? What do you mean? Like, first of all, I didn't even know you could appeal once. Secondly, appeal again? They already said no. He said, no, this time tell them who you really are, right? Let them see you. Let them see the real you, right? And so I appealed again. I didn't get an immediate decision, but I told them, I said, hey, guys, this has nothing to do with football. I'm going to take this seriously. I'm not going to let you down. <laughs> In so many words, I'm not going to let you down. And the day we reported back for class, about halfway through the first school class day, it's when I got the word that my appeal had been accepted. And I was back into the honors program and I started traveling to games with my books. The night before Texas OU, I'm working on statistics and accounting and the <laughs> whole deal. And um, go to office hours, do all the things about God's grace, got a chance to stay in the honors program. I won the Campbell Trophy and it was really amazing, special. So we're going to fast forward just a little bit now. You end up having a phenomenal athletic career to go along with the academics, of course. You end up getting drafted by the Arizona Cardinals. You tell a great story about how draft day went for you. Fast forward a little bit more. You decide after your rookie year to befriend Larry Fitzgerald. But your lockers weren't near one another, and young guys don't typically just go chat up future Hall of Famers. So how did you end up breaking the ice? Yeah, well, that was the thing. I think I was almost forced to break the ice. You know, imagine like kids want to go jump in the pool and you're kind of scared and kind of get somebody just pushes you. People have been saying, hey, Sam, tell me about Fitz. How's Fitz? How's Fitz? Is he a great guy? And I would just lie. Oh, yeah, he's awesome, man. We hang out all the time. Oh, yeah, Fitz is the greatest. You know, I hadn't talked to Fitz one time my entire rookie year. And then finally it got to the point where I was just tired of pretending and tired of faking. One of my friends said, hey, man, if you haven't talked to him, go ask him, talk to him, get to know him. And so I did. One day before one of our offseason practices, I saw him sitting down. And one thing I noticed about Fitz is that he really cares about his image, what people think about him. I remember just going up to him one day and I said, hey, Fitz. So people come to me all the time. They ask me about you. They ask about, are you as great of a person as you seem? Are you as nice in real life as you seem on TV? And they ask, why do you do all the good works that you do in the community? And I paused. He said, okay, well, what do you tell them? I was like, dude, I tell him I don't know anything about you. I don't know if you're a good guy or not, if you do any good. I don't know why you do the stuff you do. You could be bad. I don't, I don't tell him I don't know anything about the kind of person that you are. And he looks at me and he says, well, dude, why don't you just get to know me? <laughs> get to know me. And that conversation would develop into a relationship that would actually open up the door for me to meet two current U.S. presidents and develop relationships with them that even span further than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, and you tell that particular story in this book as well. And once again, it has to do with letting the world see you and who you actually are. And it turns out very beneficial for you. Maybe a little bit less serious than that, though. How did you end up with Free Chipotle for a year after your second season in Arizona? Oh, man, people are so mad at me about this one. (laughs) So there was this thing called a Chipotle card. Yes, I said it, a Chipotle card. Free Chipotle for a year. It's not a myth. It's real. And I know that it's real because I had this coveted card. I remember my rookie year in the NFL, just finished playing with the Cardinals. And and I love Chipotle, right? I remember in high school, I would eat Chipotle almost every single day to try and put on weight so I could be ready for the next season. And I remember going to the Chipotle when I was in Arizona once, twice, maybe three times a week, maybe four. I'm not, who's counting? And I would go there often and talk and hang out, just do my thing. I was just being me. Well, one day I just finished the workout. I was super sweaty and smelly and all the things and said, let me just hop in, hop out and go about my day. Well, I hop in and I'm trying to make my order so I can hop out. And as I'm making my order, 
the server is asking me question after question after question. Hey, where are you from? What school did you go to? Did you play football at Texas? What's your, you know, and I'm trying to like avoid these questions because I don't want to be seen. I don't want to have a conversation. I don't want to, I just want to get out, right? And finally he asked me, he says, well, he says, what's your name? I say, I'm Sam. He says, wait, Sam Acho? And I nod my head. He said, of the Arizona Cardinals? I, said, I nod my head again. And I'm literally getting my card out so I can pay. And he says, guys, guys, this is Sam Acho of the Arizona Cardinals. And I'm like, oh, man, my cover is blown. I'm sweat stains and all. <laughs> and I'm looking at the cashier lady, like, just take my card. And he stops. He says, dude. And I thought he was going to ask for an autograph or a picture, which and most times is fine. But this time I just wasn't feeling it. He said, dude you come in here all the time and you're just so kind to all of our workers and our staff. We have this thing that we're piloting called a Chipotle card where you get free Chipotle for a year. And all we have to do is nominate you for it. And I was like, wait, what? All of a sudden, Trey, no longer was I in a rush. No longer did I, I was ready to take, <laughs> do whatever I needed to do. I said, well, what do you need for me? Right. How can I get nominated for this thing? He said, all we need is your number. I'm like, okay, what number? My social security number, my football number, my cell, whatever, whatever you need, I got you. Say the word. And he said, no, no, it's not that serious. Just your phone number. We'll have a guy named Kennedy, who's the regional director of Chipotle. We'll have him call you and have a conversation and you'll be on nomination. And so I gave them my phone number, chatted it up for a little bit longer. And lo and behold, a few minutes later, I got a call from this man named Kennedy, who was a regional director of Chipotle of the Southwest region. And I got that call, and upon receiving that call, he asked me a question that I was not in the least bit ready for. And that question would go on to determine if I did or did not get the Chipotle card. And that question you can read about when you go get the book, Let the World See You. <laughs> I'll oh, be real. Heck of a in a world full of fakes. Heck of a sell <laughs> right there. <laughs> heck of a sell right there, Sam. And uh, I did want to ask about this also. Why do you have Calais Campbell to thank for your marriage? Oh, absolutely. So those who don't know, Calais Campbell is a defensive end for the Baltimore Ravens. He's 6'8", 300 pounds, and he is the reason I'm married and also, or was one of the reasons, right, I'm married to my wife. And also, uh, obviously, now we got our kids now. But yeah, Calais is one of my best friends, man. He's one of my best friends. We played together for the Arizona Cardinals. We set records together. We hung out together. We went bowling together. He invited me to his house. We ate. We drank. We did all the things. We just hung out. And I invited him to Nigeria on a medical mission trip. And he came with me on this trip. And I'd been telling him the whole fight, you know, we were just talking about life, about girls, about, about you just started dating this girl. who was, he said, yeah, I'm in love with her. And, and we were talking about football and chess and politics, whatever. And so we landed from Nigeria and he sees this girl, a girl who had moved from the city she was living into the village years before. I'd known her name was Ngazi. She was taking care of my grandmother. Well, Calais saw her. And mind you, and I actually don't share this in the book, so y'all are getting a sneak peek. A couple of weeks before this trip, some of my teammates were trying to set me up with somebody else, right? Hey, man, you're a good guy. You're awesome. There's this great girl for you. And so I was like, okay, let me go on this trip and come back, and then we can kind of have that conversation, right? So we're talking about that. Well, we land in Nigeria. Calais sees this young girl named Ngazi, right? We're about the same age. And she says, bro, who is that? She is beautiful. Are y'all related? And I'm like, hold on, dude, back up. You just stopped telling me about a girl that you said you were in love with. Now you're asking about this girl. He said, no, no, I'm not talking about me, man. I'm talking about you. I know you well. And you talk about your likes, your dislikes, your desire to be married, to be a dad, to be a husband, right? Your love for Nigeria and like family. And this girl, she's with your family. Who is it? Because what are you waiting for? And so he 
in a lot of ways, he pushed me to go and have this conversation with this woman named Ngazi. We were about the same age, 20-something years old. And that conversation would lead to what would be a trip that he came back to a year later for a traditional Nigerian wedding with 2,000 people. I married Ngazi, right? 2,000 people, cows and goats and all the things. And it was on that trip. And there's so much more detail in the book, but it was on that trip where uh, I got a chance to see this woman I would call my wife. Yeah, the Nigerian wedding sounds heck of a lot more fun than U.S. weddings, which, by the way, are fun in their own right, but pales in comparison to what you guys are doing in Nigeria to celebrate weddings. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was crazy. I mean, it was amazing. We had 2000 people. It was one of those deals where I don't know if anybody listening planned a wedding before or been in a wedding or whatever. There's an invite list. There's an invite list, and it's like usually you got to have 150 or 250. If you're going crazy, all right, we'll have 500 people at our wedding. There was no invite list at this wedding. It got <laughs> to a point where the wedding was at the end of one of our missions trips, and so I remember serving at some of the people outside. And they looked at me, and you know, obviously we're in Nigeria. They said, "Okay, are you Acho? Are you Acho's son?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's me." They said, "Okay, are you the one getting married?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm the one getting married." You know. And he said, okay, okay, don't worry. I'll be at the wedding. And I'm like, bro, who invited you? Nobody invited But it was one of those things where Nigerian culture, everybody shows up to the weddings and everybody shows up to the funerals. That's just how we do. We're just a big family. And so we had, I remember we had 2,000 chairs and not one chair was empty at this wedding. And I tell more about it in the book. And I got a really cool video. I got to share this video with y'all. Matter of fact, y'all reach out to me on social media. Go get that book and I can share y'all the video of this traditional Nigerian wedding. Love that. And uh, I'm not going to ask too much about your professional career. As you've mentioned, there are plenty of great stories in this book. But I am curious, though, where does being nominated as the Bears representative for the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award rank amongst your career accomplishments? Well, it's definitely up there. For those who don't know, Walter Payton is arguably the greatest Chicago Bear of all time, one of the greatest running backs of all time. But he's also known for his philanthropy, loving people on and off the field. And so the most prestigious award in the NFL in a lot of ways is almost like that academic Heisman Trophy. It's called the NFL Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. And it's an award that just signifies not only excellence on the field, but also excellence and achievement off the field. And I remember my first year with the Bears, well, it wasn't my first, my second year with the Bears actually getting nominated for this coveted award and a really, really cool thing happened um, where that award would be part of the reason why we got a chance to build something really, really special in Nigeria because of not only that nomination, but a different nomination that came not too long after it. You've spent time speaking with inmates at some pretty rough prisons across the country. Why do you consider Louisiana State Penitentiary or Angola to be so special? Yeah, I love Angola, man. I'd never, you know, people who know me, they know I don't know much about prison. Up until a couple of years ago, I'd never been to a prison. Couldn't tell you where one was. Couldn't tell you what it looked like. And all of a sudden, I remember being at church one day and I remember hearing this verse where Jesus was saying, when I was hungry, you fed me, right? You're blessed. He said, why am I? They said, why am I blessed? They said, because when I was hungry, you fed me. He said, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me, right? Giving these euphemisms of like taking care of the poor and the needy and the hungry. And he goes on and on, finally says, and when I was in prison, you came and you visited me. And I had heard that verse, but I never really paid it too much mind, right? I feel like it's easy. Okay, let me 
give something to a homeless shelter or let me maybe get some food or something. But something about prisons, and I know we were doing like at our church, this prison packing thing, right? Get some gifts from the, the men at prison, from people who are incarcerated, but who also love God. And I said, I wanted to do more. And so I actually heard about this trip to the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Its nickname is Engel. It's the largest maximum security prison in the United States. 6,300 inmates and over 90% are serving life sentences. And I heard about this trip and I said, I got to go. I got to go. I got invited by the pastor and then invited by another guy. And I was like, okay, this, this, the, the writing's on the wall. And so I go on this trip to the largest maximum security prison in the United States. And I was floored. I was floored, not because of fear, but because of a kind of freedom that I've never experienced in my entire life. You talk about pivoting in this book, essentially transitioning from one phase of life to another. That can be pretty difficult, but you offer up four principles that really help when somebody is having to pivot. This includes not forgetting to mourn when a situation calls for it. When was the last time you mourned, Sam? Yeah, it's funny, Trey. I'm, I got some mourning to do. I, uh, one of my high school classmates I just found out about a couple of days ago, He, I never really kept in touch with too many of my high school friends, but I obviously I got a book coming out, so I emailed all of them to let them know about the book. I was super excited about it. And the very next day, I found out that one of them lost his sister, his older sister. And and I still didn't know. I still, not that I don't know what to do. I know what to do, but that one hits home because it's one of the few black kids in our class, right? We went to this predominantly white school. We had like four black kids in our class. And so, obviously, losing anyone is hard. Having a friend who loses someone is hard, but also just knowing them and, and what they stand for. My sister and, and his mom were really close. I mean, it's just so, so I, um, I was shedding some tears not too long ago, maybe yesterday, I don't know, it might've been, or the day before, but I think there's still some more that need to come out. Sam, this is the first season that you're not playing organized football in a long, long time. How does that feel? And do you want one more shot in the league or are you at peace if your football career is over with? Yeah, Trey, it feels good it feels good and the truth is it didn't feel good last year last year for the first part of the season i was a free agent as well ended up signing in early november with the tampa bay buccaneers and finished the season there but that did not feel good (laughs) (laughs) it was a struggle i was on the struggle bus matter of fact i might have been under it getting ran over it it was a beast and i remember just mourning on sunday mornings i remember crying I'd be at church singing the songs. All of a sudden, I'm crying. I'm like, why am I crying? It's like, oh, wow, because there's football games going on. And for the first time in 10 years, I'm not playing in a football game on Sunday. It's hard. I remember Sunday nights and even Mondays, right? I remember getting angry at those closest to me, my wife and my kids over little things, right? Getting angry and upset and mad. I'm like, why am I so mad? And I'm thinking, oh, it's Monday and there's a Monday night football game. This is the first Monday in really 14, 18 or so years where I'm not either playing or practicing or getting ready for some kind of football game during the fall. So I was mourning. And so that season was hard. Fast forward about a year later and I'm a free agent again. But the interesting thing is that that season of life taught me something about this season of life, that mourning is okay, that it's okay to cry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to slow down, not have to have it all together. 
um, and trust that God is going to have my back and have my back. He has. I couldn't be more excited about this book. I've gotten a chance to speak to different organizations, different teams, collegiate and professional. I've got a chance to speak to different companies and share with them this message about what it means to be real in a world full of fakes. Even universities got a chance to speak to the Macomb School of Business in an alumni series about what it means to be real in a world full of fakes. And in my book, Let the World See You, is out and available everywhere. You know, my fear was that, man, if I'm not on a team, how will I be able to promote the book and people, you know, relevance and all these things. But me being a free agent has been the biggest blessing. This book is everywhere that books are sold. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Target and Walmart, everywhere you find books. And I couldn't be more excited about that. That's very cool. And I would imagine this is not going to be your last book, Sam. And final question here, speaking of the University of Texas, there is a conversation going on here in Austin about the eyes of Texas, the singing of the eyes of Texas at the ends of football games, and whether or not players should participate in that. For you, as a guy who obviously wore the uniform, you are a graduate of the University of Texas. I'm curious to know, what does the eyes of Texas mean to you? The Eyes of Texas, like a lot of things, has mixed reviews for me. In one sense, there's a sense of pride for the university, a sense of togetherness, almost like a string that in a lot of ways could bring us together. We've all sang the song and it can be this rallying cry. But in that same way, that rope is also tied, at least from what history says, with some not so pretty cords and strands. So instead of us all pulling in one direction, it's become somewhat of a tug of war. I remember being at the university and hearing the song and people talking about the 40 acres and talking about even some of the racist history, not only of of our school, but of our country and saying, man, something's not right about this. Not only the song, but some of the population of students, right? Only 4% of the students here are black. How come all the black kids are all on the football team or basketball team? Right? Something's not right about that. And so for me, it's complicated. It's complicated. Yes, the song can be used to, quote, bring people together, but there's also a history of the song that we need to acknowledge and address, not ignore, in order to properly move forward and all pull in the same direction. He is Sam Acho, nine-year NFL vet with the Cardinals, Bears, and Bucks, a public speaker, humanitarian, and now a published author. His new book is Let the World See You, How to Be Real in a World Full of Fakes. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Sam, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Thanks, Trey. Had a blast. And thanks to you for listening today. As always, you can go to booksonpod.com to listen to all of our episodes or search Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>